0: Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Today we have a grand circle tour of the X-Books, kicking things off with our first bit of coverage of Inferno Number 1, before moving over to Excalibur 24 and rounding things out with the kids in the most danger, over in New Mutants with New Mutants 22. First up, Jonathan Hickman's Inferno No. 1 revisits the most significant, moments of house and powers while still continuing to redefine what it means to be an X crossover giving us countless moments and panels that we're going to analyze I'm sure for years to come. We hope you guys enjoy our first coverage of Inferno and if you guys like what you hear don't forget you might even like what you see so don't forget to check us out over on Twitter and Instagram over at X is for podcast.
1: Welcome back to another episode of X is for podcast. This week, we're going to be talking about the title everyone is on fire for Inferno. This is going to cover X Factor issues 36 through 39 and Uncanny X Men 239 through 243. Written by Chris Claremont and Louise Simonson, with art by Walt Simonson and Mark Silvestri, inks by Dan Green and Bob Wychek, colors by Glynis Oliver and Petra Scotese, and letters by Tom Orzakowski and Joe Rosen. Kyle, what do you think about Inferno?
2: I think I might have uh, read the wrong books. <laughs> are,
1: are we are we not talking about uh, the one with the the where crazy mailboxes turn into demons and um, Ileana's limbo demons take over Earth and um, Scott's ex wife becomes a crazy underboo goblin queen?
2: While I do love that story, no, we're talking about the Kirkoan Age Inferno.
1: Oh, <laughs> okay. So then this is Inferno number one, written by. Jonathan Hickman, with art by Valerio Skeety, colors by David Curiel, and letters by VC's Joe Sabino. So in this book, Emma gets to flaunt her ultimate boss attire, rocking a Cerebro helmet to resurrect Charles and Eric. Meanwhile, Moira is fed up with their male inferiority bullshit and commands them to get rid of Destiny and Mystique. But too fucking late, because Mystique has already made her power play, and Destiny is motherfucking back with me today to talk about Inferno no, number one is Kyle. Kyle, say hi and tell us where we can find you.
2: Hey, you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's drantis 82
3: hey guys i'm evelyn the comic canary you can find me at twitter and instagram at comic underscore canary
1: i'm josh wheel you can find me on twitter at a at the wheel w-e-i-l and at a at the wheel.com and for the next year as the progressive democrat running for u.s senate in the state of florida you can find me across social media at wheel the number four u.s senate and at josh org. so inferno number one there is so so much to talk about we have to start with the fundamental flaw there's there's a major major problem at least with the way that this book is being delivered to us and the way we're reading it now i'm sure that looking back or reading it in trade later this will be i i hope would like to think that this will all have settled down but what the hell is up with the reading order of these titles and i was worried this was just me at first when i read it i'd been blocking out all twitter discourse on Ebooks and inferno and so when i unblock those after after finally reading inferno one this week i thankfully like the majority of the discourse i saw was just people like what the hell is up with trial of magneto and inferno and there's a dark cold book coming out with where um scarlet witch is still alive and like all this shit's coming out at the same time and what the hell is up with the reading order and on these stories because if we're two issues into the trial of magneto and we open inferno one and charles and eric are just like boyfriends for life happy all good like like nothing ever happened and it's it's a little weird disconcerting to place this book in the timeline of everything else we've reading especially when the x line has really tried to be so specific about their release orders on titles um where they place titles we get a specific reading order in the back of each issue every week with the order we should be reading the ones coming out the same week like we're given that all month long so this was it 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 definitely distracted from the reading experience for me me as going through and I feel like it's a big problem with the not the construction of this story but the delivery for sure.
3: When I first opened it I'm like wait a second what did I miss? And I went back and I'm just like no I didn't miss anything. There's a problem with the reading order and my only thought is that it has to be still like pushed back from COVID because we know that Inferno was slated for happening now, but everything with COVID pushed everything back. So they're trying to get caught up and then still have everything going in order, but they just, it just dropped the ball on this one.
1: I, I could see that if that's the example, especially when we're talking about how 10 issues of X Factor directly relate into Trial of Magneto, right? So we're talking about if those. Those are only going to come out once a month if we're not speeding up the release order on any of those that that we're specifically dealing with 15 months of title and there's only so many months after the covid loss
2: this has been a issue since pretty much the beginning where we assumed that this was the reading order and it was really it really came back to it just being a release order and because we, we've seen a number of books that fall out of sync with the rest of the story storyline and this this is it's frustrating but I've gotten to the point where I'll look at it as a suggestion but not as the golden rule for these books
1: yeah maybe I'm just still in that mindset carrying it along from early on where like they were very specifically giving us two to three for the first year giving us you know two to three titles in the same week and there was a defined reading order that affected the way you read them in terms of spoilers from one issue to the next so I mean for me it's tough I, I know that there I had confusion about this going in because I remember the early solicits and ads for Trial of Magneto said that it was going to lead into Inferno and then when we got two months ago the first solicit showing that this shit was coming out at the same time and you know like my my kind of assumption was okay if Inferno is going to start in October that like these Trial of Magneto just wasn't going to be monthly we were going to get it like every two to three weeks or something and five of those would drop before Inferno won the fact that it is coming monthly feel really slow I don't know if they weren't able to get all the art in on time to speed it up but especially with the way when we think of how big crossovers like King in Black and Empire have been released with books coming basically weekly now like getting a trial of Magneto story spread out over five months feels really slow and like the rest of the line just can't keep up or like there's just a time dilation different like things are just not lined up the same as they usually
2: are. Right. And that I mean, I think that's that's part of also why I was like, Trial of Magneto's not gonna be as consequential as we thought because Wanda's showing up in this other book like the next month.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah so we have like and like i try not to read solicits i bury my anger deep inside when members of the X's for podcast team post solicits in our group chat after i've tried blocking them out on the rest of the internet um i i am willing to miss the pre-order on some hardcovers and things sometimes as the cost because i don't want to see what's going on in a story two months ahead of time um but yeah i mean solicit do kind of like they've been messing up comics since i was a kid some of my earliest memories are like you know the big onslaught and the wedding of lex luther and the contessa in superman comics both around the same time where you know it was a big mystery and they were plugging it in the books there's gonna be a big mystery wedding you have no idea who it is or who is onslaught nobody knows but man if you were reading like, if you just cracked open that big issue of previews sitting there on the counter at the comic shop like then you knew Yep. So, I mean, I hate that this is affecting the reading experience, especially because if Inferno, and it feels like Inferno is a bookend to Hox Pox, right? But yes. this is our bookend to the hard Hickman era, or the hard Hickman part of the Krakoan era, that the reading experience of Hox Pox was amazing. What they did with House of X and Powers of Ten in terms of lining up the release orders for mm-hmm. Uncanny and Age of X-Men and Age of X-Men Alpha, the way all of of those things dovetailed at the end. And then you had literally you had one book release age of X Men alpha, one book release house of X one, like these things were going like one, you were getting like one a week, but every week you were getting hard, significant story because then we got weekly like they pushed back in time to make sure they had all the art for house and power. So we got 12 straight weeks mm-hmm. of that mm-hmm. going right into the dawn of X launch where those were ready to go. And so it is a very different and, and it's not on the creative aspect here. Like, I don't know that this is affecting the creative the way some of the release problems affected it, like with Children of the Atom, for sure. We know that it impacted the creative side. I don't want to say it positively or negatively affected, but it definitely impacted the creative side of Ten of Swords in terms of them changing the number of books and and depending on where they put those extra books, you know, really changing the pace of that story. Mm -hmm. But here we're just it's a very different reading experience getting all of these... Non uh, concurrent stories at the same time that are supposed to be big ones that are like, yeah. we have two events that are, are supposed many to events. directly follow <laughs> each other happening at the same time. And like, okay, so there was some cool interplay. Let's go into some of the cool interplay on this before we start getting into just like all the good stuff about Inferno. So I really like the way that we got cool interplay with Moira sending Magneto to get his Cerebro helmet, right? And which was a direct call to what we just saw two weeks earlier in Trial of Magneto 2, where Rachel goes to Magneto's Island and they're trying to figure out why his cerebral helmet's missing. And she's like, it looks like he took it. That's right. And so getting these one after, like that was a pretty cool. I'm not sure that it was intended to be that way because I can't be like, man, they timed that perfect when the whole rest of it feels like timing has just, I think maybe we just like coincidentally that got to be a a cool byproduct getting them back to back like that. But at least there is positive interplay any other in terms of pairing this with trial of magneto and what we're seeing any other feelings or on the timeline release interactions Mm, that was the big one that i picked up on
3: yeah that was the big one for me for
1: me like there is so much beautiful stuff in this book and we'll start right at the beginning i finished this and just the first thing i wanted to do was just scream to people about like what the fuck is up (laughs) with this time like And so, I mean, that's a huge, like, that's not when you put together a book this gorgeous, like, with your top talent book ending against, you know, arguably like one of the top, if not the top X Men stories of all time in House of X Powers of 10. Like, you don't want people to close this book and be like, what the fuck is up with the, like, the timing and the release of the the timeline on this?
3: Yeah. Um, Yeah.
1: Now let's go into like what the creators really did awesome. We open with a line that will be from this title someone remembers is why they keep coming, which is said by the Omega Sentinel and will be a, a very powerful, cool line when we get it and resonates great because we got the preview glint of it and we open with gorgeous, gorgeous art here and really impressive because it feels so much like Hoxpox. It really does. and oh, It's not but it's not them. Exactly. It's not Pepe and Marte. It's Valerio, it's Valerio and David Curiel and man, they do just an amazing job and it it mirrors the early, um, especially with the paneling, the breaking out of the egg, the holding the chin, the look up at the figure with the cerebral helmet. It mirrors the early panels of House of X-1 so nicely. Mm-hmm. But we get we get boss Emma bringing back naked, ugly baby men of Charles Xavier and Eric Lencher. I didn't
2: realize that that was Eric.
1: <laughs> I didn't at first either. It does not look... Maybe, like, when Magneto is naked and gooey, I would have expected him to look a little different. Uh, (laughs) The hair threw me off for sure. But Emma getting just her look up at, like, them having to, like, naked on their knees looking up at her in boss bitch pose. Just giddy. (laughs) A giddy expression on her face with the cerebral helmet on. And then we get the close-up panel of her to me, my X-Men. Was a fantastic way of opening this book.
3: Which, Mm -hmm. I mean... I hate to be at a dead horse, but that's exactly what I mean. Where it's like, if this was after the trial of Magneto, I feel like this would be even more powerful because of that ending. Yeah. Because that's exactly what I've been saying is that like Emma she's not exactly going for the power play but there's a power vacuum and she's going to be like why not me and that's exactly what i've been predicting that's been happening so i was just as giddy as her
1: so n- jump ahead real quick because the next thing we're going to get into is some good moira stuff and moira is just <laughs> done with these two dumbasses fucking up her plans and mm-hmm. do, could we potentially see over the next few issues of inferno moira going to emma and because emma is really rising up as and god i just i'm, I'm looking at this panel of her where she truly has this like giddy smile on her face which stands out because emma does not have giddy smiles very often like and it's actually a really nice pairing because we got a wolverine issue where we just get to see her in just her just embrace of the rbf like pure stoicness and like this is how i fuck all y'all up because you can't see through me Mm -hmm. like i hide all my cards played and done really nicely over in ben percy's book and so to have like just that reminder in the same week of of how close to to the vest she is, and then just this panel where like the facial expression, like she just can't hide how Gideon smile, like a big toothy, grinny smile on Emma Frost is it says so much because she's not a character mm-hmm. who smiles like that.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: So before we actually get into the Moira stuff, we do go into a log of mutant incursions on Orcus, which I thought was interesting. So essentially, X-Force has been sent after Orcus a fuck ton of times, as well as some other people. Uh Technet which was a fun little drop, a brood swarm, which makes sense, and a redacted one that, I mean, we used to say, like, we'll find out later, but at this point, like, how many redacted things do we never fucking find out about? So, like, who the hell knows if we'll ever find out about redacted? I think they forget about a lot of them. But we do have, we have 13 X-Force incursions, and I thought this was a little strange, because... To me, this felt like something we should have been seeing or getting glimpses of all along. Did anyone else? How did you feel about finding out that X Force has been going on Orcus Incursion for the last year or so, and we have no idea?
2: I think it kind of made sense. There were bigger stories that had to be told instead of just repeated failures over and over and over again. I mean, it it would have been nice if we had seen maybe one or two of them. Besides, no, we we did have the the Mystique story. We or we had one of the mystique stories we did have the original so yeah we I got a know, flashback
1: to one yeah in the
2: give me back my wife i don't think that it was especially necessary to show all of these
1: these failed attempts
3: okay. yeah i would agree with that
1: nimrod fucked them up so good that was beautiful and i did love the way this played out right so we see the the, the three-man team of quentin choir wolverine and domino go in and they just get destroyed by a Nimrod, which leads to Orcus having the conversation, like, why are they not getting better? Why is this getting easier for us? Like, we're learning from all these fights, and they're not. And then the realization that they don't remember, but someone remembers. It's why they keep coming. So that opening line, and them getting the realization of these memory gaps, Mm -hmm. right? The memory gaps on the ones who are resurrected, which, to me, feels like one of the most interesting and organic components of this. Right? Now, we we had so many question marks coming out of Hoxpox, right? It was one of the great things. It was simultaneously, right, a, a very complete, uh, beautiful story, but also did a lot of that, like, J.J. Abrams mystery box setup stuff with, like, just here are all these questions. Only because it's not J.J. Abrams, we believe that, like, someone had actually thought about the answers ahead
3: of time. Shade.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But- <laughs> memory gaps during those resurrection bits was not one of them but I feel like that's something that you know starting with Domino's resurrection right where you know she had the the plea to Colossus make sure that I keep this memory and then she didn't right where we started being aware like oh there's a like there's a gap there and that has really more and more grown into not just a story device but a, a, a point of interest like other characters characters in the story becoming aware of it beginning to manipulate it and very clearly i think you know we're led to believe in this xavier and magneto are dead somehow now do they die at the end of trial of magneto 5 like i'm like we don't know why they're dead it's this mystery that they're dead now maybe we are supposed to know but if it just truly is mystery that they're dead like we and they come back and are like oh fuck destiny is alive we have to believe that whatever power play mystique did to get destiny me back happened in that dark space where she killed Xavier and Magneto Mm -hmm. so they wouldn't remember like Mm -hmm. there is this manipulation of that dark space and it's a really interesting thing because part of me likes this as a story beat even more knowing that it wasn't one of the intended ones like we had so many things about like mutants versus AI and AI being something that was not invented but discovered like fire and is inevitable and you know these future timelines and you know the the Moira 10 lives and all of these, you know, sinister and chimeras and eventual betrayal and, you know, Orcus as a threat and we had Apocalypse's family and uh, Araco and, you know, we had so many different things that were laid out as potential storylines from House of X, Powers of X. But this really wasn't one of them. Like, this feels like a natural evolution that, like, the writers kind of stumbled into along the way and it's just become so good.
2: Maybe not a Originally, but within like the past year, I think that they've been embracing it. Oh, yeah they're and, aware of it now. For oh yeah, or, like, oh yeah, totally aware point.
1: of it now. But I, yeah, I mean, this wasn't one of the. I don't think this was one of the. You know, if you imagine Hickman with like early day <laughs> <laughs> meme, like with that's a, exactly yep, meme, how I and, imagine like, his office. And strings and markers and stuff. But, like, <laughs> I don't think this was one of the cards on the board. You know, right. when he's sharing House of X with the rest of the uh, writers team. Like, I think this made it onto the board, but mm-hmm. I. I it, it, it's part of a natural evolution of the story mm-hmm. that's been
2: story. Oh yeah, totally. It even calls back to what we read in Onslaught Revelation where Kurt was explaining that because there's none of this Consequence for dying—that the mutants aren't learning from the the mistakes of those who did die, and they're not evolving
1: because right. of that. And it, also in that issue, we're seeing that the emergence of Onslaught, which was you know planted by orcas right? So however the fuck they did, however the fuck they implanted a, a psychic orcas seed into the Law, whatever that was. Yeah, but that it was essentially sent there, and it's been growing by eating those moments by eating mm-hmm. like the psych energy and memories that are being lost like where do things go when they're lost apparently they feed onslaught so the byproduct of this play this manipulation and other things is that it's also been feeding this dark entity like this is something that yeah it's been popping up across titles and has become more and more important in in both its um, uh, impact and its consequences mm-hmm. so that a that is a story beat that i am super high on next though we have a flashback or or a retelling, a remix, if you will, of the Moira 3 death at the hands of Mystique and Destiny. And this was another thing I've seen a lot of people because this one is more pages than the original. There is more story here. And there were some people online, for sure, who did not like that this wasn't a perfect match. They had lots of feelings about this. Like, what does that mean? Like, is this someone else's? Was that her memory and this is someone else's memory of it? Is that, um, you know, has her memory changed was she lying to Xavier and that was like what she wanted to show him but this is a fuller version like or did Hickman just decide he had more things he wanted to say about it like um but what were your feelings on getting the the remix to Ignition here um
2: I really enjoyed it. I I thought that it, it was really well done. I liked seeing those reimagined panels. I mean, they're pretty much the same exact thing with Justin in Valerio Skeetie's style instead of Pepe La Raza's. And I, but it's I just It's still so good. It's still so good. And it's it's I liked the extra stuff it helped to build out a little bit more of what happened. I don't think that it's somebody else's memory. I think it's it's just Moira giving us more of what happened.
3: I would agree because we kn- we've we known for like since Hox that she, for some reason she hates Destiny and she does not want Destiny on the board at all. And so this is a more complete reason for that, I think, where it really explains just why she feels destiny is in fact a a big problem to have and so she wants her eliminated and not to be a fat at all
1: destiny and moira should be on the same team they weren't in her third life it appears like they probably would have been in other ones but like moira's i mean for good reason like Moira's holding on to some you know pain there and to moira you know her two big threats appear to be nimrod and destiny Mm -hmm. to her even nimrod is the one that is the big threat to all mutants now as we we end this scene we go into moira's tenth life the current timeline and we see her holding what looks like a burnt book with the cure like it looks like her book from the third life did anyone have any like i was a little confused because i felt like she had retrieved the book from the fire because we're seeing the building on fire in the third life and not on fire in the 10th but the book looks like it was burnt like any confusion or just like is this are there things we don't know here like what were your thoughts on this page and panel
2: so that is from my understanding we're mere Island and i i have a feeling that she was just collecting stuff that had been sitting there since she went into hiding after her whatever it was after died her of, fake uh, after her assassins. fake death by the at
1: the hands of Mystique. Uh, the Legacy virus. I thought was that Mystique. No, she had the Legacy virus. Mystique right. killed her in Dreams End. Oh, okay.
2: I the Tenth Life Mirror Island does not look like it's been ravaged by fire. It just looks like it's been abandoned. So, but the
1: book does look like it's been ravaged by fire and being like those three panels side by side by side I feel like am I supposed to draw the conclusion that she somehow has this artifact from a past life
2: the book to me it looks like it's just been damaged through age in a unprotected environment it doesn't look like it's been burned
3: I feel like it could be interpreted either way the thing that like gets me is the fact that it's like her name is in the book which means either during her 10th she was still working on a cure or somehow from a previous life it survived. And I feel like it could be interpreted as either. Okay.
1: No. So now, now hold on. So that is a good point. Thank you for clearing that up. This cannot be from a previous life then because the name in the book is Moira McTaggart. And she was not Moira. She's only Moira McTaggart in life. Yeah. In every other life. She was Moira. She was her maiden name. McTaggart, Joe McTaggart was the evil, abusive, drunk senator that she married only to have a super powerful reality warping baby. Okay. If that says Moira McTaggart, taggart yeah. it has to be from life thank you yeah and i the way
2: that i because it starts like halfway through the book i'm assuming that this is just her journal of all of her previous lives and what she's mm-hmm. done to just to keep track of everything that she's tried for she's got lots incident. of memories right she does, i mean remember yeah. in
1: in number six or whatever you know like she was trapped for whatever like a millennia with logan mm-hmm. in the you know terrarium or whatever okay. so we see orcus monkeying around and we learn that horticulture is causing problems which like why the fuck is Krakoa even allowing horticulture to like cause problems for them and then we get Moira having her big scene with Xavier and Charles where we learn that they had drugged her a little um, so that way they could track her we also during this time learn that the secret city that she's been going to because it has the best food is Paris which I guess felt like a little bit of a letdown just because it was so obvious like I really would have Loved it if it was just some like random ass city that we're like no 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 the woman with like a million years of life experience has the best food is in Beirut mm-hmm. or you know Louisville mm-hmm. or whatever but yeah so we get a huge Moira Xavier Charles scene which were some of the most impactful and important in terms of world building that we got in Hoxpox and it's our first return to them in a very long time
2: I felt rather uncomfortable with the way that Charles and Eric were treated her i understand that this whole 10 lives and when she dies everything starts over is a big deal but the fact that they are restricting her from leaving and tracking her without knowing that makes me really really uncomfortable i
1: i I think it's a good reminder that like these two especially xavier have never had boundaries or respect for other people's autonomy or agency fucking Mm -hmm. ever. Yeah, I thought it was Ever. And, like, this retcon did not, this retcon did not change that. Like, they're still just who they are.
2: Uh, But it did, it did make me sympathize with her a little more. I've, I've kind of been on the, oh, is she really evil in this time, in this particular life? And now I'm like, oh, no, she kind
1: of feels like she's a captive at this point now. So I'm, I'm super pro Moira. I've never had the the Moira evil thoughts. I would say that Xavier, of the three of them, Xavier, Magneto, and Moira, Xavier is the most morally dubious. That is my read on the characters long term and both in this era. Nothing has really changed that for me. I do think it's interesting, again, talking about their dumbassery, right? So she sends them to collect and destroy all of Destiny's DNA. So they go and get it from Sinister and just trust that Sinister would destroy all the DNA and Totally be up front and not hide DNA from them, which is just like the dumbest thing ever. And there's a little canister there. I had to, I was out of town when I read this, but as always, I had my little um, Hox Pox and codex cipher in my wallet. So I pulled that bad boy out to read that the canister says SN3. So whatever that means, or if that comes up later. And then we get to kind of go into some Krakoa stuff. So we see Doug waking up with his big beautiful wife, Day, drinking from his I Love Krakoa mug, living his best life. And he goes out and picks up a warlock and they go and they hang out with krakoa and you know I love you too big guy and they sit in their little nest at the tree and you know have themselves a nice morning just that
3: whole panel where yeah. like warlock's just like uh she's kind of scary and Doug just goes yeah she's a little terrifying i love her so much and just the eye roll from warlock yeah. like that just whole panel was just yeah. the greatest thing in the world <laughs>
2: <laughs> and the joy on Doug's face, it's just like I oh need more God. of him and Bay. I just I need a so one-shot
3: of like a day in yeah. the life of Doug and Bay. Mm-hmm. Like that's just all I need. And I want
1: it I want it drawn by like Scotty Young. I want it like <laughs> super cartoony and just like happy and Yes. <laughs> The remnants of the Quiet Council, right, what's left at the moment, have a meeting with the captains. And so, remember, our original captain squad was uh, Cyclops as uh captain commander, Bishop, Ilyana, and Gorgon. Gorgon, who is alive in a sense, not, not a captain now. Not, not ready for that. He's, he's a baby Gorgon in a big Gorgon body. And so the captains have brought it upon themselves to uh, bring in Conan, bring in Psylocke, and Cyclops has decided that he needs to step down now that he's running the X-Men. so He's going to step down from being Captain Commander, Commander of Captains, and Bishop, who is still fully engaged in Hot Boy Summer, gets to be the new Captain Commander. So big props to Valerio Skidi here because this has got to be the hottest Bishop has ever looked, ever, ever. And we should also point out coloring as well. We have had a lot of justifiable criticism over the years of the way that they regularly fuck up and forget how to color storm and bishop and they did not they are are beautiful and appropriately colored and drawn and and a fantastic moment where her as the region of saul gets to crown him as the commander of captains and they look fantastic Mm -hmm. in it thoughts on this scene
2: it's absolutely beautiful the coloring the lighting that they use the shadowing everything is absolutely gorgeous i love that they chose bishop as the captain commander i love that they got rid of scott now that he is part of the main x-men team
3: which makes sense At least I think
1: so. I think that what you mentioned about the coloring, the lighting, too, is really interesting because it was very reminiscent of things that we we've learned and seen over the last decade in film about how important it is to have cinematographers who know how to light and and shoot black skin differently than the way you would like intimate close-ups or lighting for other colored skin people. And you know, I think of a movie like Moonlight that I think was like the pinnacle of that of really showing off like when you put the and the people in to shoot this right how different it looks and make you aware of how badly it's been done in the past and the fact that the lighting or coloring was kind of reminiscent of that because it doesn't need to be in a comic it's not like they need good lighting to, to to frame the features like they're drawing it but using that lighting that kind of feels like a number of those photo shoots or films where we've seen how how black skin should be framed colored shot with the type of care that we have put onto everyone else when, you know, we're shooting them for film and photos to look beautiful. It it elicited some of that, which, which I really liked as well, because there are stark changes. Like you see a definitive change in the panels without them. And the panels focused on Scott or Conan, you see a huge change in color when we go back to the quiet council without them afterwards. So it was very specifically like that they wanted this lighting around those two characters, which I thought was nice. Final scene, a beautiful quiet council scene. Although, as much as I've loved the art in this book, like, I don't know why Bastion Shaw looks like a, like, Vincent Price vampire. But the rest of it, beautiful scene of the Quiet Council, where their Xavier and Magneto have their plan, you know, they're going to try to get some people to step down, specifically Mystique, so they can bring in new blood and new people, but Mystique's got other plans, and the joke's on, mm-hmm. the trick's on them, because she brings in to be on the Quiet Council. To the shock of everyone except Sinister who is laughing his fucking ass off The Return of Destiny. <laughs> Shall we vote?
2: I am very surprised that this happened so soon. I was expecting this to happen later in this run. I was
1: not expecting it to happen in the first book. And it's one of the things that for me really makes me wonder what we're missing in Trial of Magneto. Because mm-hmm. as we had a Trial of Magneto after X-Factor X, factor Ten, I felt very much that Trial of Magneto was going to have a bigger focus on Mystique mm-hmm. than Magneto. That we were going to see Mystique really, using the events of the gala the death of scarlet witch how whatever level of involvement she had in these things or the aftermath to make her play that we were going to be seeing a lot of mystique impact in that title and that may still be true in which case like we don't know how much of this is foreshadowed or see, like how this would feel had we read those other three issues of tom
3: i was just gonna say and then that and that one panel where xavier and magneto are like reflected in in Destiny's Mask is just, it's so beautiful where it's just like, it- Like I feel like it's such a like a very big moment and I can't help but think like how much more epic that panel could have been if we had the trial of Magneto conclusion.
1: Yeah. Now I do want to go back because that is a beautiful panel but for me and some of this came after so again there's a Wolverine book that came out this week as well and Ben Percy in the aftermath really wanted to give props to Adam Kubert for what he did because in their conversation about what that should look like they felt that there should be a lot of they wanted a lot of characters or people seen in reflection especially when solemn was around that the reflections of people in objects and metal would be important and so on my second read of this after that i noticed the specific use of reflections in this book as well and particularly here, because we have this panel of Destiny's mask with this kind of marred, unhappy reflection of Xavier and Magneto, which is a phenomenal mirror piece—no pun intended—to the one that we get at the very end of our flashback story to Moira Life Three, where we see the fear and horror in Moira's face through Dest- reflected in Destiny's helmet as well. So we had earlier in the issue, we had a Moira, we had a couple shots, but particularly at the very end, Moira reflected in Destiny's helmet. And now we're Xavier and Magneto after her resurrection. So I loved the artistic kind of pairing on that as well.
2: It, it was a great mirroring of, of that. And I, I definitely picked up on that. I don't always pick up on callbacks, but that was a specific one that I did notice. And I, I loved it. I, I loved that callback.
3: As much as I liked it, I feel like I would have liked it more had it been in a proper reading order, which I feel like is just what we're going to get from Inferno and Trial of Magneto just moving forward.
1: Yeah. And I think that's how we opened it. And you know, my big takeaway from this was I think that it was a and I I don't have problems creatively. I think that you know, what was created here and what we're given is fantastic. I just think that when and how we were given it is affecting or diminishing the reading experience now. And hopefully afterwards, right? If we hand the trades of these to someone to read in proper order a year or two down the line, it'll be a a fantastic read that resonates a little differently. Now, this book is way too big to be covered in just one discussion. So make sure you check out all the rest of our panels and rooms because the entire X is for podcast team is going to be talking about this title room after room after room. So make sure you check out all of our coverage and back to you, Nico.
0: everybody nico here again now excalibur is the magic x book it's sort of the outlier mystic title and it's in many ways usually been that with a couple of weird genotian exceptions i'm looking at you volume three but this volume has been such a powerful demonstration of how mutants and magic can come together to form one synergistic story and i think that's even been a huge behind the Kracohen era in general. an idea that what we've always understood X-Men could be, it finally is. and I think Teeny Howard and Marcus II are really paying that off issue after issue in the pages of Excalibur and we hope you guys enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. Now I'm Nico, and you guys can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N.
2: I'm Kyle, you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82, that's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2.
1: And I'm Josh Wheel. You can find me at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L on Twitter and at, at com. And for the next year, as the Progressive Democrat running for US Senate in the state of Florida, you can find me across social media at wheel, the number four US Senate and at joshwheel.org. Okay.
0: Now I'm really excited because I honestly haven't been on an episode of Excalibur in forever and this was a really standout issue of a mostly standout run with some perhaps uneven moments but we're here to discuss Excalibur 24 by the crack team of Howard and 2 with a little bit of Asrar and Wilson on some magical covers of course rounding out that creative team is going to be Eric Arseniega on the interior colors as well as team favorite VCs Ariana Mar over on Letters with Tom Muller pulling in design, John Hickman with one of his, I have to assume, final Head of X credits coming his way as Inferno continues to burn his glorious playbook to the ground. So we are discussing an issue that I can best summarize as Betsy likes to fight. People really like Betsy. Oh, right, Araco. Merlin's crazy. Here's some Arthur. Mordred's freaky. Everybody get ready for the resolution. I think we can agree that the plot of this book was there have been so many beautiful threads dangling, and I would love to know from you guys, just to start things off, what was perhaps the best surprise for you guys? I maybe found myself enthralled by the sudden return to the notion of the validity of the claim for the alternative Captain Britain's. Like, this discussion of what makes a Captain Britain a Captain Britain seemed to have fallen by the wayside throughout the series. And one of the things is I like that it defined heroes by what they do, not by their lineage. So it was really great to see a return to that and to see Betsy be one of the champions for it. How did you guys feel about this return to some earlier storylines in the pages of Excalibur?
1: I have really enjoyed this book. This has been one of my favorite books. I really... And Tini's doing so much. So like you said, with so many threads, she's been pulling on not just lines in from Otherworld and things built all throughout um, Ten of Swords. When we started getting, we just had so much information dumped on us about all these kind of things brewing or going on in the background of all of the other realms of Otherworld. world. But also, kind of bringing in character connections and plot threads from other books and keeping up with what's going on. I, I really wish this book was coming out more on like one of those uh, ASM 18 a year or Deadpool 18 a year release schedules Marvel does sometimes, you know, where we're, we're getting like three every two months because there's so much going on in this book and I really enjoy it. I think somewhere around, so I know that when X- Ten of Swords started, I went back and I reread the first two arcs and I had a greater appreciation for what Teeny was building. I think that the kind of breaks and the, and the long spread out was difficult for me to follow along. It needed to be kind of more read and trade format. But since then, and especially since the Malice arc, which that, that final issue of, of the Malice arc is, for me, one of my top issues of the entire Krakoan era. Um, I just think teeny has been doing a fantastic job in this book. She's balancing so many characters you know we have a constantly kind of influx expanding in and out crew in Excalibur of people kind of tagging along or coming in we have all of these characters in Otherworld we have all of the Braddock family characters and they're all getting service and agency you know we have these beautiful scenes um, like with uh, Jubilee and Roma Uh, we have you know these great little spots with Richter and Shatterstar with Shatterstar coming in and just being so cuddly all the time on Richter and you know with what we've seen Richter go through since Excalibur number one or two when he first showed up in his dirt box like there's so and and none of this is even getting into the main plot of hate against the witch breeds and the mutants in Otherworld and Merlin leading his revolt with Arthur and everything that they're doing against Mordred like the main A-thread you know we're getting these stories with Gambit finding his place in Otherworld over in the crooked market and you know running in to jaspers and having converse you know kind of some deep conversations that are foreshadowing possibly some things with jaspers in the future it's such a compelling and well-built story giving so much service to so many characters and even mention Bay showing up yet like just Bay being here and legitimately being here and owning a place and like this I like to call it the
0: Iraq and war slumber party. Yes. They all had like
1: a big pre-war slumber party
0: and they all showed up and they were like, I brought my sleeping bags made of the pelts of enemies. And like, you know, they all start cuddling up in these dead carcasses and they're like,
1: tell a ghost story. Yes. Bringing back death. And I think maybe the last thing I want to say big on it is just what she's done with Betsy. There were definitely points early on where... And I know Teeny knows Betsy as a character, but I felt like the efforts that it took to kind of recenter her as you know not questionably Asian influenced Betsy was felt like it was kind of forgetting or being dismissive of decades of badass assassin Betsy. Like Betsy was a stone cold fucking killer for a solid decade in you know from like the mid two thousands to the mid twenty tens, but we're seeing that like we're seeing so many layers and depth like we're seeing her utilize these like weapons you know like when necessary she can be the proper british diplomat or she can be the person who will drive a sword through your fucking heart and and she, the character is wielding it so well and is in more control of her identity in these pages than we have ever seen her ever in, in 40 years of this character Um, and and Tini has built that and I am enjoying just every page of it.
2: There was just so much in this story that I kind of wish that it had been split out into two issues or had gone into an, into a double length issue just because we had all of the members of Excalibur visiting the various lands of Otherworld and then we had this hard split into the second half of the story which is the trial of these three
0: amazing alternate Captain Britons yeah
2: alternate Captain Britons who I absolutely love and I hope nothing happens to them. I like that they all look like patriotic push pops <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah it it almost felt a little too rushed for me i I wanted to see more time with Richter Shatterstar, and Bay in particular, but it felt like they only had what two pages, one page
0: it's a it's a tight situation when you have a cast of 40 yeah
1: yeah and so for me too this brings back some of my favorite periods of x-men's like particularly in the claremont era and i know nico and i have had these conversations in, in some previous episodes but when you look at how claremont especially for the post dark phoenix how claremont scripted out his his kind of big periods you know like from 150 to 200 like the first one half is very tightly scripted he had these specific arcs he was hitting and he he was going from A to B to C. And there are these really tight stories that you can say, you should read this. It's these issues. You should read this. It's these issues. And then from 175 to 200, it's just like improv. It's just soap opera. It just free goes. And there's all sorts of shit going on. And it's really hard to like break off anything that is like a story. It's just the world mm-hmm. is moving on. And then he does it and again. he from like, the same. Yeah, he does the same 200 thing. From 200 to 200 Inferno. 200 to <laughs> Inferno. He does it again. And then post Inferno. Inferno. (laughs) inferno until the end it just goes and i honestly i love the 175 to 200 and the post inferno until muir island like those are more of my favorite eras where he's where it's just this whole world is moving forward and there's a million threads and so many characters and this has a lot of that feel to me like that this is just is this part of an arc on with merlin and mordred maybe but man it also feels like it's part of like just the whole world and all these characters moving forward and, Mm -hmm. like, this shit ain't getting cleanly wrapped up in six issues for a trade.
0: No, (laughs) Now it needs to piggyback on both of you because you're both so smart! And, you know, Josh, you said that one of the big things for you is redefining Betsy away from Asian influence. And Kyle... You said one of the big things for you is that it feels like there's just so much going on that it's almost hard to have page spacing for everything. And I think in a lot of ways, they're both resultant of the same source, which is the birth of the mutant generation is taking the idea that Chris Claremont and later Grant Morrison ran with, which is mutants as culture, and it's redefining it as a culture per... um, I don't want to say nationality exactly, but it is creating a nation and it is designing a citizenship and a citizenry and a general sense of mutant culture that's sort of uh, built into being a mutant in the same way gay culture is built into being gay or Latino culture is built into being Latino, etc. And in an attempt to get her away from being Asian, they really need to hit another culture. And I think they sunk in as a team, you know, the Excalibur Creative team sunk into British culture and exploring Merlin. But at the same time, we're still exploring Krakoa through the idea of witch breed mutant magic. And I think it really is a situation where you're absolutely right, Josh. This thing either deserved another five issue mini series every year where they could do like, you know, Megan's Otherworld adventure where they could have, you know, set up some of the Shogo stuff with Jubilee or something because the main thing this book is suffering from is too many amazing ideas.
1: Yeah, from one stand yes, like there's too many things going on in the book that like we do need more pages. The other thing is that there's so many things going on that when we're getting 10 to 13 X books a month, plus, you know, whatever else it is that you choose to read and follow narratively in comics literature podcast television film whatever like it's a lot of shit to try to remember 30 days later when you sit down again and try to keep track and remember wait who was this where were they and I think it's great and it's one of the reasons it kind of goes back to how the first couple arcs really read better in trade but getting this more often than once a month you know even if it was just like 3 every 2 months would do a better service to this story because it would be easier to keep up i could easily see how some people would feel like they don't remember where threads were coming from.
0: And Kyle, you know, you were just commenting that you've been enjoying the Marvel Unlimited format. And specifically, you said that your favorites are the ones where they utilize the format to their advantage. I think Otherworld stories for Excalibur would be ripe with opportunity. I think that would be a pretty clever way
2: to get more in there. Are you talking about the Infinite?
0: Yeah, on Marvel Unlimited Comics. Yeah, I'm just using the term Unlimited sort of interchangeably because Marvel can't seem to come up with what they want to call these things.
1: Marvel Unlinfinite.
0: Marvel Unlinfinite is actually one of the settings on my dryer... Uh, yes. So <laughs> Kyle, <laughs> if, what would you be looking for from more from this book? You know, you said you feel like there's not enough room in the book. What would you want to see further explored? I know for me, it's Otherworld. Like I just, I think oh. this book needs an otherworld side book.
2: Oh, definitely. I mean, there are so many things in otherworld that we haven't even touched on. I mean, we we haven't even discussed that death has been in Sevillith since Ten of Swords. Which this is, is like- this is. Which so was good. yeah, and having him show up here was 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 great. I
1: so, don't think I was aware that they employed assassins there. So, could you imagine how great it would be like if instead of say X Corps that we just had this second teeny book was just an otherworld book, and we had an Excalibur book that focused on our main characters: Betsy, Gambit, Jubilee, Richter, and Shatterstar, Megan, and so forth, and then we had and you've just pulled all of the other world threads, all of the political machinations and the Civil War upcoming and just focused entirely on the realms of Otherworld and what was going on there for like a 12-issue maxi. Not to mention like how beautiful that hardcover would be afterwards when it was done for that 12-issue maxi. And I mean, these two books would just complement each other. They would be, you know, like Hickman, Avengers, New Avengers, like sister books that, you know, would enrich each other. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we would be getting twice, like, because 24 books a year would really deliver all of this so much nicer.
0: And it kind of goes back to one of my favorite Fraser jokes. There's an episode where Kenny, Kenny suggests to everybody at the station that maybe they should go ahead and make theme songs for their shows. And Gil Chesterton comes up with the gayest, faggiest, best ever theme song you've ever heard. And it's so good. And so Fraser needs to outdo him because he's Frasier. and. Frasier is told to write a 10 second jingle and he winds up uh, hiring an orchestra and somebody says to him, Frasier, haven't you ever heard less is more? And Frasier says, yes, but if less is more, imagine how much more more would be. And I think Teeny Howard's writing is an example of where the adage less is more does kind of fail. Her ideas are big and beautiful, they're robust, and they are really owed to interconnective map identity, right? Like, you sort of need to see the big picture of the country to understand the value of the states. And I feel like that's sort of what Teeny is trying to pull together with how many different threads are in how many different pages. I can't believe that Teeny Howard had the Excaliballs to try and stick Shatter Star in here as well. Like, where yeah. was that gonna go?
1: Richter <laughs> needed someone to cuddle with him while they were camping, alright? Well, that's understand. exactly how
0: much room there is.
2: I, I get that, but The last time that we saw them together was at the gala, right? And that was not a pleasant experience. That was (laughs) no, that was not a pleasant experience. But then at at the end,
1: they went and they had their little night on the beach.
0: Oh. You know, I have to be honest. I like, Seriously, Josh, one of my favorite things is when you channel this super energetic 90s teen girl. Like, <laughs> there's times that you reach into your soul and you channel the awesome, encouraging best friend from a 90s slumber party movie. The one who convinces the girl that she can do it. And I just feel like sometimes when you're like, no, on the beach. I'm like, he's right. I can do it. <laughs> like, I can go after the guy. We're going to sneak out and we're going to beat the boys at the basement diamond this is a really good teen rom-com that i just created it's the girls softball team versus the boys baseball team and they're playing down at the lot at the end of the street oh this is going to be the best movie ever oh I'm
1: so-, so also hold on if we're going to talk about shadow star because shadow star has two key contributions to this issue the first is just cuddling with richter the second is one of my favorite little passages it's two panels where it starts off with betsy yelling at brian and she yells like you know i swear brian you're not even a mutant and he he says, "But everyone I love is so here I am." And then Shatterstar comes up behind him and goes, "Here's to that new friend." And the two of them just like bonding in battle on that—that that, like I'm not a mutant, but everyone I love is. So let's fucking fight. Is is one of my favorite little spots in this book too.
0: You know, I I get a little sad. I'm gonna just confess something. I get a little sad that everyone on the show kind of hates Brian Braddock. <laughs> it kind of bums me out. And look, no one can be blamed for what they do and don't like. That's not that's not what what I'm here to do. I'm not here to make anybody feel bad for liking or disliking a
2: character. It's not my game. But he's had I, his rough patches. But I do. I do enjoy the book.
1: He's the token hetero. Yeah. he's
0: an addict in recovery. He mm-hmm. is a man with severe sexual identity disorders due to the timing. I mean, and it's bad writing, but he was quite literally copulating inside of a woman as his parents died and were calling for help. So, like, he has some weird stuff, and I actually, weird IRL thing, I knew a guy who had something similar, and it actually did, like, super sexually mess him up for, like, a decade. So, like, the character has been given some real heavy lot, and he is a character who is constantly told by the government, well, you're going you're gonna to be our little white bitch boy. And he constantly says, no, I'm not. And then he's told, if you pass up this opportunity to do right, you're the problem. So he does the thing. And then he's told, you're a cog in the machine, you fool. And so he quits. And then he's told, you didn't stick with it. And it's sort of this self-fulfilling prophecy of misery for this character. And the only way out of it was to give somebody else the mantle of Captain Britain. But that means we've only really had 20 issues to celebrate who Brian could be. Right. Because that first few issues, he was evil, blah, blah, blah. He's got this gorgeous new costume. He has an opportunity to actually establish a relationship with both of his siblings while being with his wife and having children. This is just a really cool time to be a Brian Braddock fan, and I really hope that they continue to steer him down this avuncular figure role, because he shouldn't be the white savior of Albion. No. He should be the comfortable, avuncular, alcoholic in recovery, been there, done that, let me help you carry your burden. He should be a
5: Wolverine.
1: But so here's what you just said. He's not a Wolverine, because what you just said is he should be the let me help you carry your burden. And that goes to kind of my thoughts on Brian Braddock, which are and I I I have some I have some definitely like maybe a little bit guilty enjoyment over this, but his most interesting or best stories are when he has the least agency.
0: Oh yeah, unfortunately. Because when
1: yeah. he is in service or helping or is a, a side note or something for other characters. And the fact that like the big star, you know, Jack Spangled, Star Spangled, or whatever the fuck you call it over there. Like, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes alpha male, you know, white, cis, het, not marginalized, you know, in any way, shape or form fucking character has no agency and only serves as like a plot device or a sport for typically female or marginalized characters is fucking fantastic. But those are his best moments. And like, we're seeing it here. It's when he chooses to stand with them because he loved them. And so that's not his story so much as it is theirs. It's, I think, when he's at his best and most interesting. But like, it doesn't stand alone. Like, it's one of those things where would I want to read a six-issue Brian Braddock solo right now? Probably not. Nope, not at all yeah
0: and like i i love his his stories but no i would and you know kyle i don't think you've ever read a captain britain solo series you know there's the original no. captain britain weekly there's the backup series then there was captain britain and mi-13 which of course gave us one of the greatest characters of all time
1: but you that's know that's what i'm saying like it's like yeah remember that last series he had that he was the main character and it's like yeah what did <laughs> i love about it not him He was was (laughs) there. He was there, but that's not why I go back to that book. No, no,
0: it's not. And so that does bring me to a major thing about this book that I kind of guess I need to get into. Kyle, we were green rooming and it sounds like you are familiar with what I'm talking about. Recently, I want to say it was Arturo and Raven were both very aggressively like, who the fuck is Mordred? And I'm like sitting there going, we just talked about him on Black Knight. And like, hey. It's possible that people don't realize it's the same Mordred, and I'm not even being silly, but one of, I think, the more ridiculous things about the Marvel Cinematic Universe is nobody makes the joke of the fact that when Hawkeye became Ronan, I was surprised to see him in the big green outfit swinging the hammer. You know, and the fact that Star-Lord had trouble beating an archer with a sword to get cause see Ronin and Ronin, they're the same damn name. So, like, it happens that in the Marvel Universe, there could be two characters with the same name. So I do
2: get it. I, I get it, but both both times they're referenced as the son of Arthur. So Uh, my
0: question (laughs) is, are you reading the Black Knight stuff that this is going on in Kyle?
2: Yes, and if I remember correctly, he got sploomfed.
0: Yeah, he got bloomed really hard after he tried to use an app to make everybody kill each other. Yeah. Which was a weird, weird,
1: weird. Wait, are you guys talking about Tom Taylor's um, Superior Iron Man? No. We're no. We're talking about it's a different Black story, It's A different story where he used an app to try to make everyone kill each other? Yes. This is
0: Mordred tries to make everybody use an app to kill each other. In the pages of Black Knight and the Curse of the Ebony Blade, where it turns out, and this is actually, this is so amazing, actually, Um, I'm a really big fan, in the end, a relative of Danes ultimately joins him In sharing the burden of the Black Knight, so now two people wield the ebony sword, and they share the darkness, so neither one of them is ever corrupted, and they're going to appear together as Black Knight in books going forward.
1: That's pretty awesome and I, I, is, I I'm so I'm I have about not it. read the the most recent Black Knight it's, um, so good. Miniseries. it's so good Is this a like a modern living relative of Dane or is this uh one of yeah. like nineties the multiple nineties historical relatives of him that look exactly like you him know. and are drawing back? Not exactly like him, and are basically just him. But when they put him in another period in time, they just give him a different name, and they're like, "Oh yes, it's Dane's great great grandfather. He looks just like Dane."
0: No, I mean she's no. vaguely a woman of color, so like, <laughs> not so much. And what makes it even better, because I agree with you, that's something that, like, I play the Lego Marvel superhero games, like, super religiously, and every time I would unlock another Black Knight, I was like, oh, look, it's another random generic white guy. Great. And so, like, and they all look the same in their armor. It doesn't really bring anything to the game or the character. So I very, very get what you're saying. She is an Arthurian historian. So she already is a genius in her subject matter. She showed great intelligence and great skill pretty quickly. Now, I will say, it is Cy Spurrier. So you need to be aware that you're going to get a Psy Spurrier story in which there's a lot of vomit for no reason.
1: and I like my Psy Spurrier comics, and he hasn't been doing this on his Marvel books recently, but I love in his indie books where he gives me fucking footnotes at the end and I get a page or two of like where I can literally go and look up all the things that he just made references to that went over my head during the book. Like I need that. I need footnotes at the end of my size Spurrier comics.
0: They actually do a number of just like, fairy tale pages. Uh, because number one, the the pencils are by Ibn Kalo, so like they're it's they're brilliant and it's the guy on Dark Ages with Tom Taylor now, right? So really funny way to get back to Superior Iron Man with Tom Taylor, right? He's doing a he did a really great job. It's five issues. It pretty much spins out of the King in Black one shot sort of kinda but not really, but kind of maybe. Uh, I do recommend reading it because, I mean, Kyle, I think you and I both probably at the same time went, okay, did the ex-office read that, (laughs) (laughs) mini?
2: Yeah, that was pretty much what went through my mind. Yeah, I'm like, uh, Mordred's sploofed. He he
1: shouldn't be around. (laughs) Well, and so this is a great question, like, because we want there to be so much communication and continuity in our line-wide comics. And, you know, we know that they have to ask permission permission to use characters but like that's things like black Hat or gambit or shit like that and sometimes they don't even care sometimes they'll just be like you know what wolverine's actually like trapped in another dimension now but fuck it like it sells books put him in this other title too like is there a legitimate possibility that like no one had to ask for permission from mordred and he just randomly asked happened to be used simultaneously in two separate parts of the marvel universe like it actually is
0: a huge thing for them to do
1: it i remember matt fraction being told that like he couldn't take fantastic four off the board because you know certain characters were going to be used in other crossovers and like ben just wanted to have this one here and hickman wanted to be able to use this one there so he just went uh and he just did this like really obnoxious blatant like and look i installed a blah 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 transporter so no matter what dimension or universe or place we are we can pop back to earth right in our own time anytime we need and just threw that in Like one panel before they went off on their adventure, so turns to the camera, big wink, yeah, like a a Zach Morris, you know, um, breaking the fourth wall moment there. Like it's that's yeah okay
0: okay Reed Richards is the Zach Morris of the Marvel Universe. (laughs) (laughs) Cell phone before everyone else, I agree. Okay, yes. So one of the big other things about this issue that I'm fascinated by is the fact that I've find that Rogue lifts out of this book so uncomfortably easily mm. that the mentions of that rogue, that other rogue, sometimes I wonder if – sometimes people go, okay, how to write Gambit. Figure out what Vin Diesel would say in a, fa- in a Fast and Furious movie and just make it a little Cajun, right? That okay. rogue there, they better not hurt her. Right? Like no. it's just so – ridiculous sometimes <laughs> i really need is. a
1: panel now of like them confronting some like insanely impossible odds and and gambit saying like um nothing's impossible when you got family i, I guarantee that. i need that now <laughs> i do think one of the reasons why rogue left so easily out of this book is because rogue and gambit were only one character like when rogue was oh. in this
4: gambit got no
1: service gambit was like an accessory rogue was wearing and Mm -hmm. so gambit is now just taking the place of rogue um like there's still only one character getting that time and agency it was rogue before while gambit was getting disturbed and now it's just gambit actually being served and you know being a properly utilized character don't you mean gambit is serving um in his little french maid dress little yes with cat ears With ears. with cat ears yes
0: Okay, I absolutely <laughs> love everything you just did, Kyle.
2: That is...
1: The cat ears are the part that Gambit would be least upset about.
2: Yeah, yeah. But on top of Gambit going French maid with cat ears, we also have Death going Senpai Noticed Me.
0: Yeah, a little bit Fred Astaire, <laughs> a little bit fret Senpai Noticed Me, a, a whole lot Tuxedo Mask. I yeah. I really yeah. love this massive shift in Death. It is not that death wasn't interesting in the first place, but death sort of had that. There is, okay, so sometimes an era has a palpable mouthfeel. Right. So there's, and I'm going to keep saying it every fucking segment till it happens. There's a new Tori Amos album coming out this month. So I'm putting together a Tori Amos video essay to celebrate an incredible 30 year career from a woman who changed everything for me. And one of the things that I'm seeing is the sort of consistency of uh, like a palpable sensation that I get based on a zeitgeist contained by an era. And I try and contextualize a little bit why that might have that bite to it. You know, there's a a sort of pop gothic to everything she did from like 2007 to 2009. And you know what? She is such a political person. And I think she was still reacting to George Bush in so many ways, even the 2009 album. You know, like, so I I get it. That's who she is. It's what she did during the Trump administration as well. And when I go back to Ten of Swords, I get a very brown orange feel in my mouth. I get this very specific, almost acidic taste. And it's not bad. I don't, you know, looking back on Ten of Swords, I smile a little bit, I guess you know, I'm I'm going to say a thing. I don't love Messiah Complex. I don't love Second Coming. I don't think they're the end-all be-all, but I don't think they're the worst thing ever. When I think back on them, I smile because there's plenty of good about them that I really like, and I would really like to celebrate. I feel that way now about Ten of Swords, but there is an inescapability to the initial interpretation of Death and Solemn that I think these last few installments with Bay, Death, Solemn. These few stories have really cleared my palate in a way that has me viscerally excited about the future of these characters and their place in the scope of the X-Men. How do you guys feel about that sort of difference between who they were and who they are?
1: So I, I feel like we can't really discuss the, like that without mentioning that that was very teeny designed. And it's much of the same thing we're talking about in this current Excalibur storyline is that you know any character you like might not be getting served as much as you want. You wanted more Bay or you wanted more Shatterstar or you wanted more Roma or you wanted more Brian or whoever. But when you have 40 characters and 20 pages, it's just not going to work that way. Even with Ten of Swords being 24 issues long and some of them jumbo side. We had a huge cast from the swords bearers to the main cast and teams of the individual book to the 10 new Arakans to the court in Otherworld and Saturnine to like we had so much going on. We had Scott and Gene in the background and planning their rescue, and we had, you know, Black Panther and Wakanda and the repercussions for Storm taking her sword, and like there was so much. That like these new characters, those were new characters being introduced and they were not, they were like wine that didn't get enough time to to breathe. And now they're getting time to breathe. Uh, You know, the fact that an existing character like Doug played a big role and might have not gotten as many pages as he needed, it still worked. Because, you know, he was the 17th most important character and had a major thing going on. But we all know who Doug is. So we we needed, have our Doug
0: cash that we, we can needed, access yes, for the writer.
1: Cash. We had no death cash or solemn cash or Iska cache or poggerpog cash, Or, like, we only had everything that was explicitly given to us. And with a cast of 100 characters.
0: Do you remember when everybody on the entire internet promised Pogger Pog their hole, and then it absolutely <laughs> came to nothing? Yes. Do you guys remember which, that?
1: Which is the most accurate metaphor of grinder I've ever seen?
0: Yeah, pretty much. The giant lizard man was like, "Fuck you, good," and everybody was like, "Yeah," and then he was like, "Um, I'm actually a smaller man wearing a bigger man. Um, I hope the deception wasn't a problem." And everybody's like. Fuck, if you had just been a little lizard man in the first place, we would have loved you this much. Go to the back of the line. (laughs) I'm just saying. Now, Kyle, how do you feel about the opportunity to dial a little bit further into who the Iraqi are? I know that that had been something you had been very excited about during the event itself, giving us all of these new mutes
2: i'm excited about it um with arako becoming the seat of soul it it just makes sense that we're going to see more and more iraqi mutants especially the ones that we had already been introduced to i mean we're we're seeing little bits of a bay every once in a while in like new mutants and and stuff like that but seeing her here revisiting dryador that was a nice little tidbit i I, like i said earlier i Wish we had gotten more than a page. Finally revisiting what Death has been doing. We still don't know exactly what he's doing. He just says that he's working. That was nice. I do hope that we get to see more of what's going on in Sevoleth that has his attention so much.
0: I, I just need to comment that I love everything you just said, but I have been so stuck on the fact that when you said Arako is the seed of soul... All I can think to myself is that is the lost Howard Ashman lyric. <laughs> like, <laughs> that is the most musical thing I've ever fucking heard. Araka with the seat of soul. Like, I mean, it, is, it is right fucking there. Okay. And I do agree with you. There is a great need to see a further development of a lot of those ideas, especially because, you know, and Josh, this is something you've weighed in a lot on. It is so important that we keep these characters not as perhaps tropes because of what that ultimately has led to in terms of using these characters as sort of minority representation and then treating them very badly. It was something you had, com- yeah, you had commented on during cable.
1: You just cannot be like, we're going to create this as minority representation and then side serve them and only use them when it's convenient for your main characters. Because while that is exactly how minorities are treated in the real world, like that is no, like that is the antithesis of what the X Men books need to be about. Because that that access point into marginalization is what brings us all here and keeps us here like it's what makes this its own separate like there's marvel as a whole and we love that the x-men are a part of it and that occasionally they interact but like there's a big difference between like x-line marvel and the rest of it and so often even if we love chris evans in the mcu movies you when you're in marvel comics if you're an x-men person like so often you're like fuck captain america he's a cop
0: You know, I never want to get that way, but there's even times I'm kind of like, you know, Bish, you're kind of acting like a cop lately. Like, it even happens with X-Men themselves. So yeah, Cap definitely doesn't get that pass for sure. I agree with you. Sorry, yeah, I just, that was really funny. Captain America is a cop.
1: <laughs> if you read the Wonder Woman 80th anniversary special or you follow, you know, your weekly dose of Tom King hate on Twitter, we learned last week that Superman is a cop and it was perfect.
0: And, you know, that's, okay, so that does sort of bring me to one of my final questions on this book, which is also a big part of what I think is inherently why Teeny Howard needs a second book, not just because she's immensely talented, but rather maybe perhaps a second book in this realm. Because, okay, so X-Men got Krakoa, Krakoa made mutants magic, magic mutants magic. Okay, see mutants magic, but now see mutants in space. Space mutants magic, magic mutants space. That's sword. Like, yeah, but that's, that's sword. But that's <laughs> kind of not quite far enough. In many ways, S.W.O.R.D. is mutant space. What happens when all of this mutant magic goes to space? What happens when Richter, whose whole thing is, I feel the planet now. I'm connected to the Earth. What happens when you sort of take this idea of mutant magic, which we're only starting to understand in terms of a Krakoan viewpoint on the Earth, and you put it in a new situation. I sort of think that Excalibur is going to be responsible for a lot of the big progress that we're going to see post-Inferno. And I would not be surprised if Teeny found herself positioned with a pretty major title that is not Excalibur okay. after the reset.
1: First, I do think that S.W.O.R.D. is Excalibur in faith I do definitely feel that, at least in intention and setup, because mutant magic and mutant technology are actually the same thing. And that's been one of the kind of cool, fun, little... Subtle things like they try not to explicitly say it so much, but mutant magic is essentially just multiple mutants using their powers together to do things that you know couldn't have been done otherwise, which is exactly what mute technology is. And all of like that was the big kick of all of Apocalypse's old grimoires and shit like that is essentially just stuff like the five, um, and now the six. And and so, yeah, like sword and a sword is a book that has suffered in its storytelling because it lost five issues to three crossovers of its first seven issues, I think. Like it I don't know, we did the numbers on a previous episode, but it has had less time to be itself than it has be something else.
0: Wow, so sword is a book trapped in adolescence.
1: Yes. We're seeing we're sword is still an egg. But we're seeing in the most recent issue, no, it's not using Richter, but it's using Storm exactly the way you just described Richter. Storm and her connection to the Earth and her connection to the atmosphere And her carrying that and blanketing it around herself to carry it with her as she now goes into space and leaves Earth and leaves her atmosphere is a tremendous nod that like, you know what, if Richter went into space, he might need his dirt box, but he would still be Richter. And if he had a greater purpose to Earth, he probably could. Getting that exact same story, but with Dorm there. I would love to see Sword and Excalibur really try to mirror each other in those ways a little more, like, specifically, running as Parallel. Books because they are they do have so many similarities thematically in what they're doing. In terms of the relaunch, this is a big question I've had, and it's one that really kind of struck me. I wanted to kind of jump in and ask at the beginning of the episode when, you know, you mentioned that this is one of our last times, you know, where that we we can see the end of the road when we're gonna stop saying Hickman is head of act. Do we think there's going to be someone else listed as head of act on January?
0: I think perhaps part of why Hickman is leaving is because The X books are best suited to a democratic sort of electorate. I don't think giving, you know, and it it actually goes back to a thing I wanted to say earlier. I love the age of the comic book rock star, and I will forever love the age of the comic book rock star. But the age of the comic book rock star is over because now it is the age of the comic book all-star team. I'm no longer looking to see Neil Gaiman come in and headline Vertigo. And Neil Gaiman isn't either. I mean, Neil Gaiman is one of the guys most saying this. So, like, please, I'm not like, I'm not trying to invent the wheel, but How
2: dare you? Know, you.
0: Right? I, oh, my God, did everybody see his takedown of the person who complained about Death's eye makeup? Yes. That was the greatest thing I've ever read in my life. That was, number one, word for word, like, out of my mouth. And then, number two, better because he said it. So Or, or, it or, or his, so
1: takedown, his takedown of the person who tried the saying he should be piece? canceled because he wrote a horrible character. And he's like, the fucking point is that you see that they're horrible. Oh, my God, right. The, uh, the,
0: I was thinking of the Desire takedown. <laughs> oh, my God, I can't stop. Man, Neil Gaiman is so good at being Neil Gaiman. Don't
1: start fights with people who are going through divorces. That's, kids, there's your lesson at home. Don't start Twitter fights with people going through divorces.
0: Yeah, especially when the person is so, like, he, I mean, Neil Gaiman essentially defined modern gothic literaria for an entire generation and then retroactively redefined it for an older generation who realized it's okay to like somebody under the age of 60. So, like, it's just fucking wild. But beyond any of that, I love the idea of fucking, you know, instead of Neil Gaiman coming in and us looking at it as he is the great hope, I love the, and John Hickman in this instance, I love the idea of sort of like an X-Men classic Bulls lineup, you know what I mean? Like, I love the idea of, Of bringing together such great voices That the head of X is a brain trust And you know maybe there are Still some writers who perhaps have less Say than others which isn't always The kindest situation and I know that If I were given an opportunity to write something At Marvel I would probably want to be able To fully control my own narrative But there is a point at which it becomes Messy you know you asked a question that I never got To answer before because we have such a good time talking The three of us but I do Think that Mordred is so low on the fucking list That it really doesn't matter who asks to write him. I think it's one of those things where at some point, he probably belonged to... It probably is like, you know, there's there's a, a Word document, and it says Arthurian characters, check with Excalibur. And there's probably a document out there that says Arthurian characters belong to Black Knight, check with Avengers. And I bet everybody thinks they're allowed to use Mordred, and who the fuck is fighting to use Mordred right now? So, I think we have...
1: But also, Barrier is working with both of those editors.
0: Well, that's... A he needs. Really a, he needs in one point. of his group chats. That's a really interesting point. Well, you know, I do wonder because Sy Spurrier is so on the outs. Like, he is such an outside guy. He's always got his hands in so many pies. And that has nothing to do with... I'm not, like, saying, like, oh, Stice Spurrier wants nothing to do with the X-Men writers. No, no, no.
1: is also one of those writers like Charles Soule, who you know that if he's saying something, like, he can't put something in a script unless he spent four hours fucking researching it ahead of time.
0: Right, right. So, you know, I think... I, I think I think things you know there's there's things to think now, Kyle, what about you for your sake, going forward? where do you hope to gain from Excalibur? What is your end game here as we approach what is likely the end of the volume or at least a reset point as things rebuild post inferno?
2: Mm. so you know with the with this uh civil war kicking off i'm I'm worried about what will happen to excalibur's ability to stay in otherworld and if that's the case how does the team move forward
1: but that's a fantastic point we haven't addressed is like otherworld is still the place that mutants can't die and excalibur being the liaison there if there's a massive fucking war breaking out that they're going to be a part of them some stakes. they're huge stakes Um, Omaha Steaks. (laughs)
2: and it's it's not just the the risk of death and not being able to come back it's what happens to avalon what happens to avalon's allies uh obviously we have we have jubilee with with roma and she's she's considering allowing shogo to to stay uh so that he can learn to to be his dragon self but at the same time she doesn't want him to be used as a weapon
0: it just seems like an opportunity like missed to have them go live in a together right like space dragon like that shouldn't be a thing like like a problem i mean we just fought an army of space dragons so it's definitely not a wrong
2: right but so, like but but a is not other worlds
0: i feel like we're moving toward a place where they're writing out jubilee as a mom They're writing this story out, and it feels like we did a lot of work for it to end in a way that doesn't feel very worth it like i feel like we could have just lost the kid earlier
1: i don't think that teeny is writing her out as a mom i think that she might be writing jubilee out of this book as a full-time character maybe but i don't think writing her out as a mom because i have seen writers like teeny and christina strain and um, leah mention multiple times that like the two most impl- like the most important things about jubilee's character and like her growth and stuff right now is is Shogo. Like Shogo is one of the two most important yeah. things that mm-hmm. you absolutely have to. Mm-hmm. And they respect that. And they're not going to take that away, I don't think. This is our October issue. There are two issues left before, you know, we turn the calendar and, you know, we're in new age. I don't think this is wrapping up in two issues. I think that we're going to continue to build up. We might see one or two threads wrap up. We might see one or two character stories. You know, Jubilee might choose to sit this out um, in a more peaceful part of other world with Roma and Shogo while the war is going on. Like we might see some stuff like that. Uh, I think that we're going to probably start January in this book with the beginning of the full-blown everyone's at war civil war other world civil war. Even Everybody if it feels the like, like that's breaking out now at the end of this issue like that shit ain't wrapping up in two issues um no. like no it's more likely it's ramping up still than it is winding down
2: jubilee has gone through such growth regarding shogo since the beginning of this book at the beginning we saw her constantly trying to pawn him off on other people and ever since he was injured in his dragon form she's taken a new view on her responsibility towards him and yeah I, I I struggle to see her being written out as a mother.
0: And then I'm really relieved because that had really been like, my, I was like, uh, don't give up the kid. I love Shogo, right? And like, yeah, if I mean, she's going to set up shop in Otherworld, I would love it if she got some magical ass looking fireworks. Why not?
1: Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, Teenie also is the one who wrote, like we saw this in Ten of Swords where Saturnine took Shogo and Jubilee's just total fuck like, like that was like Jubilee had been stabbed. Like Jubilee was, couldn't have been, they, they drew her and wrote her just in so much pain and fear and desperation like like they get how big this is they're not like minimalizing it hey
0: everybody nico here one last time and man these kids are in some serious danger new mutants is like the most everybody dies book each month and it is just getting wilder and wilder as Vita and rod continue to evolve what it means to be a new mutant in the Krakoan age. Guys, we love making this show for you every week. So don't forget to subscribe and check us out over on our many social media platforms. I've been Nico at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N on your social media. And don't forget, guys, enjoy this last segment. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open, and we'll see ya.
6: Hey everyone, welcome to another segment of Exes for Podcast where we cover comics, marvels, mutants, and magic week after week. I'm Nathan. You can find me online on Dazzler AOA. At Twitter and Instagram, that's dazzleraoa at Twitter and Instagram.
4: Hi, I'm Raven, A.K.A. Dame Red Bento, and welcome to the show. Find me <laughs> over on Twitter, Instagram, or you know, all over the webs. Who knows?
5: Hey guys, I'm Drew. You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Christopher Three. That's at D E W S I P H E R Three.
6: Alright, so we've got new mutants, we've got ancient evils, we've got weird psychic danger rooms with cool mutant synergies. I guess that means we're covering mutant. New, new <laughs> I guess that means we're covering new mutants, not mew mutants, which is an adorable <laughs> cover. Like, I really right. want a mew mutants book, like Little Kitten Danny Moonstar. <laughs> Danny Moonstar. Oh, oh <laughs> this is New Mutant twenty two, <laughs> and this is brought to us by the talented Vida Ayala is the writer. Rob Reyes is doing. All of the art that is col- that is colors, inks, and pencils. And BC's Travis Lanham is doing the lettering. All right, let's begin. <laughs> so before we start, what do we think about the whole run leading up to this point? Vidayala, they have been doing an amazing job with this book, in my opinion. And everybody can have their own opinion, so don't feel forced to say that. But I really think they really captured on... Something special with the way that they are talking about, just like the emotions of these characters. The young kids have never come more alive than they have under Vita's watchful, thoughtful pin And the Rod Reyes art is really adding almost a sinkiewicz kind of quality to this book. That's where I am with it. Where are y'all? Yeah, I'm kind
5: of in the same boat. I think this, like, uh, their run is a lot better than the first uh like the first kind of two runs that came before it um dare i say even better than the hickman run but that's because i'm not really a, a fan of like the sheer space stuff like i think it can get a little <laughs> convoluted what
4: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I agree with you.
5: (laughs) I think what they're trying to do now is like and not even just this book, but all of the books or most of the books is going back to like the Claremont days, a lot of the books right now only have like A plots, and I really appreciate this like run has had a lot in A plot, a B plot, and even sometimes like a C plot, which Claremont did a lot of. And yeah, that's like one thing I really like about this book.
4: Yeah, I've I've honestly very, very, very much appreciated how they approached new mutants in the Krakoa era. I think it, it's it been nice because instead of trying to to take center stage constantly, they've decided to work behind the scenes, more or less, giving us a very different angle instead of always, you know, hey, we're going to go have an adventure out in space or, oh, we're going to go, you know, here or there, you know, do all these adult things.
6: Here's some limbo um, demons!
4: Right, right? Like, I'm like, how, how are you going to train the new set of mutants coming in? Because, I mean, everybody's got to grow up at some point so it's great to kind of see uh, both the behind the scenes and also know that hey even the behind the scenes is still really freaking dangerous and and it's been a, it's like been a wonderful almost murder mystery kind of feel to it I'm like yeah I can get behind this because there's there's a lot of intrigue and a lot of like subterfuge and obfuscate and like a lot of a lot of subtle things going on and I really appreciate it I
6: love it really something that you said Drew really like struck me that we haven't seen a lot of the A plot B plot even C plot D plot kind of things going on but the this whole book is structured in that sort of narrative and now the narratives are sort of bridging together and I'm, I'm gonna love to see that happen it's very much one like uh, that classic sitcom trope maybe not sitcom but just classic dramatic tv trope where you have A plot B plot C plot and I really miss the complexity of that and they've been doing a really good job of bringing all of that not leaving too much hanging on the table you want to leave something hanging on the table right but they've also done a really good point of not making it like this is the moral of this week's episode don't right. do drugs kids yeah. drugs are great i mean drugs are bad right.
4: <laughs> Like, yeah, you shouldn't do drugs, kids. That means it's less for me. What? <laughs>
6: <laughs> I love how they've been able to do that, but not bring that yeah. sappy morality hope yeah. that's always brought into these things. There are mm-hmm. some morality questions they've brought into it, but they've been... Definitely a lot heavier than "Don't do drugs" or "You probably shouldn't be on a date after 10 p.m." You know, those are those old classic sitcom things. You know, the the morality questions they're bringing up are:
4: "Clones their own people." You know, mm-hmm. well, I think that's kind of the, the wonderful thing about it is that the morality that they're talking about or the ethics that they're talking about are they actually have real world application versus just the ooh. Scary. This is your morality tale. It's like, <laughs> uh, oh, okay, like I don't think I'm ever gonna be in that situation. In fact, i've I've had I've had more friends try and pressure me into take like purity oaths and shit than I have tried to pressure me into drugs. Like, <laughs> yeah so this is I feel that this is far more realistic because it's like okay well what do we do when there's an adult who does take an interest in us and you know maybe we fall for some of their bullshit and now we've learned that oh no a what they're doing is wrong and b we don't we don't need to be a part of it so okay how do we handle this It's like thank you this is this is like real world application shit for you know kids
6: so wait 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 you're saying this tale is a whole like a a real real life allegory for internet pressure and staying away from adults on the internet.
4: Well, yeah, actually. It's it's a really Makes it's sense. a it's a good allegory for, you know, if something seems too good or if 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 a if a adult that the rest of the adults are saying stay the fuck away from or you've heard really bad like hmm, whispers in the dark about it, like yeah, maybe there is some definite foundation to the reason adults are so, you know, up in arms or scared about this person so you know be well aware of who you are working with
5: but yeah the only thing that i would say is kind of uh maybe like a con for me about this uh series is like those morality questions that they bring up i find that their their answers to them are very surface level Mm. which like if you're if you're a younger audience then that's fine but me personally i always like it when like they
6: people go like deep into those like philosophical questions so 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 you were hoping for like a total redemption of Ma Malfalouk. Instead yeah, like, yeah well, or, well I,
5: I'm I'm hoping that it'll go there eventually, but you know, even just like like maybe having a different character with a different perspective that like you know will challenge the other characters or something.
6: Mm-hmm. Fair point. Mm-hmm. So we get the wild hunt kids visiting Gabby, who nobody had better say that she is the worst Wolverine clone ever. Oh, <laughs> like no. I was like, you know, she's the best Wolverine clone ever. Like leave Gabby alone. But, so we get them trying to mend the relationship, rebuild fences. What did we think of this scene? Do we think that Gabby forgave them too
4: easily? Or oh, wait, really? Easily.
6: In Gabby's character, though.
4: Well, I mean, a yes, it's in Gabby's character, but I think she forgave them way too quickly and way too easily. But I think that has a lot to do with the kind of neglect she tends to face with her own family because, you know, Mm -hmm. Logan's off saving the world. Laura's off doing what she needs to do where she is. Dokken is off trying to bang, you know, uh, Aurora over somebody's corpse um yeah it's just she's not getting a whole lot of attention paid to her and she desperately wants and needs that because the very fact that she thinks that everybody views her as the worst wolverine i I know right i'm like no you're one of the best wolverine and you really really care about you know your friends and everything so like yeah i'm just like no they're idiots baby they're just idiots
5: i don't know i like she was kind of explaining though she wouldn't have been able to forgive them if they didn't like try so hard to bring her back.
4: Oh, but yeah. wait, I'm sorry. Why was she dead again?
5: Because I friend. Yeah, Aww. but like that it was like the ignorance of them though, mm. that
6: is what did it. It wasn't like they meant to. True. Yeah, they didn't go and like stick a whole bunch of knives in her. Not that that would kill Gabby anyway. They hadn't listened to her solid advice. She wouldn't be in that situation, but they did jump through a lot of hoops. I don't know. It's complicated. It's messy. It's teenageness.
4: True. Very true.
6: Who wasn't complicated and messy as a teenager? I know. I, have a
4: thought what? I was <laughs> totally
6: put together as a teenager. When they walk in and open the door. I like love how they have just random mutants eating sandwiches or just like eating right. different food at a time. I love it. She's eating a sandwich and Jonathan's there like... <sighs> Like, that was my favorite part of, um, you know... I still hate No Girl. <laughs> Although, like, I feel bad for No Girl, but I hate her. Because, like, her actions leading up to Gabby's resurrection were very cringy. Charles Xavier? I yeah. mean,
4: what? <laughs> yeah. I mean... Ugh. Like, I I sympathize or no, no, I empathize with her on some level because she didn't ask to be in her condition and and the adults named her like the most dickish name possible. I'm like, what the fuck?
6: (laughs) I want to ask, does anybody have a favorite Wild Hunt kid? Like, do any of them really stick out to you in a good way?
4: None of them stick out to me in a good way.
6: Yeah, they're they're all just kind of like kids who are like,
5: anno- like ugh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, they're kids. Here's another thing is like, I see the New Mutants book as like, it should be like Degrassi. It's literally just a rotating cast of characters. And then like, once, you know, the people, the characters get too old, they just graduate. And that's when they join the X-Men and you get like a new set of characters that come in like this crew. And this crew will be in the book for a while and then we'll get like you know a, ne- a new crew of new mutants that come in mm-hmm. you know and they'll like look different and be kind of different
4: well and also i think this is very much this group is very much representative of outcasts or mm. or people who are on the the fringe even within mutant society they aren't like maybe actively put on the fringe but they each of them do feel disenfranchised in some way, or else they would not be interacting with the shadow king true like you have to be they have to be secretive and sneak around even to just visit the Shadow King so like yeah they all know that he is super dangerous especially in the adult's eyes and yet they're still sneaking around so that that kind of points to some disenfranchisement like Cosmar it's her her extreme um, disfiguration from what she originally looked like and her being rejected for the Crucible because she wants her body back and they're like oh that's not what the Crucible's for it's like dude, dude you, y'all are not listening Listening to her pain. Same thing mm-hmm. with No Girl. She has no body, and she got <laughs> stuck with like the crappiest name possible. She
6: ain't got nobody.
4: It, oh, it's, she ain't got nobody at all. <laughs> you know, anoli is is a teenage bartender just, <laughs> with the I worst
6: know. name possible. Okay, right? <laughs> because nobody knows how to say it. Like, okay. everybody's like,
4: "Oh, you're anal."
6: Oh God, <laughs> or anally. Oh,
4: right. Well, and, and, yeah it's like i've always heard it pronounced anoli like the lizard yeah so i'm just like <laughs> the fact that you're not pronouncing that last part of start to do <laughs> my head in <laughs> but yeah like and and same thing with rain boy like he's just i don't even know what his <laughs> whole freaking deal is he just seems to kind of be there
5: and you know what what happened to like that one uh like nature girl or, oh yeah is that like in or like in hawks pox that one like the mutant who gina's with and like I mean, yeah like why Why wasn't why weren't they included in this series ever i just thought right. that was like a missed opportunity yeah
4: mm-hmm. or sprite like there was a oh, there was a bunch of other thing, yeah. you know we saw cam uh we saw like we see we seen a bunch of other teenage mutants and yet we this is the group <laughs> that we have focused on the most for the most part uh, that
6: <laughs> sort of leans into The shadow king's inherent predatory behavior Mm -hmm. that the shadow king would target these kids that were such outcasts in the mutant community that one nobody would notice that they were missing for long periods of time because they were Mm -hmm. they were more loners although enole is a bartender so you know you think he'd have to go to his job
4: he doesn't have to show up that often mostly (laughs) mostly just for parties i think
6: fred's a very lenient boss he doesn't care (laughs) he's like it's okay kid I'm just gonna serve all the beers. Right. <laughs> that's that's my Bob <laughs> That's that's just the inherent predatory evilness of the Shadow King, and mm-hmm. it's, he's always been that way. You know, break people off, or you know, go attack the people who have the most issues. Obviously, is a psychic entity, it would be easier for him to psychically manipulate them mm-hmm. when they, whenever they have a serious, you know, emotional issue going on, because your psychic defenses with theoretically be less at that point in time but just for him to target these kids with his propaganda mm. it shows how much of an evil predator the shadow king really is yeah. now i know a lot of people were there maybe not a lot i know there are enough people that were rooting for amal farouk to have turned out to have turned a page mm-hmm. and with this issue here even with his psychic detente with the new mutants he doesn't really show that he's he's not to an evil form but he's Sort of taking the role of apocalypse at this point.
4: Yeah, he just locked them in his basic shadow realm, which is <laughs> damn near impossible yeah. to get out of, and re traumatizing one of his victims. Yeah. Yeah, i'm not saying he's not
6: evil
4: (laughs) (laughs) like i hoped that he could be somewhat good for like about two hot freaking seconds because i'm like okay maybe if you can separate the shadow from farouk you can get a redemption but (laughs) that hasn't happened and (laughs) and he has very much shown that he is the same as he always was into his own self-preservation before anything else
6: now drew you had some thoughts early on I remember covering the first uh, Vida Ayala New Mutants with you um, where are you at with where the Shadow King is now versus what you hoped for the house
5: yeah I kind of
6: wish that like we could have done a little bit more
5: interesting stuff with the Shadow King like I'm I'm actually super into like the Astral Plane kind of stuff and mm. like uh, we'll probably we'll probably see more more of it uh, like in the upcoming issues but like I want to see more of like what was happening in this and more kind of like fights in that astral plane Mm
6: -hmm. yes now we did get to see one huge fight and you know revisit it throughout the issue too that opening page i was so confused i was like what the hell is going on here i'm glad we got it described later on but i I did love that Liana's like i call the big one
4: In true Iliana fashion.
6: But if you look at this last page of villains, there is a heavy focus on New Mutant Foes, you know, the Brood. Obviously, you've got Velasco, Sim, and some Limbo Demons. How low can they go? Um, you've got. <laughs> 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 <Nimrod>. <laughs> there's there's hey. also
5: the, that page before the one that you're looking at. And it, yeah. And like, I wanted to talk about this Absolutely. one, which is like literally the face of like Amal Farouk, but like, it's also being cut in half and like used as paneling, like as frames. And it it looks really cool. And like he's actually talking. hmm Kind of everything that's happening in like Inferno right now. So you have like mm-hmm. the Sentinels, you have Nimrod.
4: Yeah, I'm like you've got Trial of mm-hmm. Magneto and Inferno. Like, the
5: fire and everything. Yeah. And then like Ooh, you got Storm's boyfriend Death in there. Yeah. And then you have all of the Orcus <laughs> the new Orcus agents coming down and
6: there's, there's a lot going on in this issue. I've always loved the art. He doesn't skip a beat from those amazing, like, over-the-top battle scenes to the, the really fiery, like, hellscapes to just even the, the simple crocoan tones. It Like, really, the colors that he uses to signify each different place just mm-hmm. really, really help differentiate everything. When you get into Amal's Egyptian marketplace, just, like, mm-hmm. it totally sets the tone is a different place even in amal farouk's astral plane or his astral prison that he's got the new mutants entrapped
4: in i love the klimt influence on um that page where you see his his head divided into paneling and (laughs) this the symbolism of both the evil eye and the centipede i'm like oh that's that's some amazing like that's amazing motif work right there because centipedes are seen as very dangerous animals because they are. They've mm. got, you know, poison, they have very powerful jobs, they are nasty creatures to tangle with. And so to have that kind of worming its way through this, you know, dreamish hellscape that he's creating for him, talking about, oh yeah, this is gonna be your future. I'm like, dude, you're you're putting poison in their ear. I know exactly what you're doing. So good though.
5: And it's also funny that like he they they figure out that this is like his worst fear. And and even like, (laughs) well, that's gonna happen in like a
6: couple weeks, maybe so. Yeah, I do love how they helped us place it because right now the event timescale in Marvel is a little crazy. We've got three events going on that are just like one right after another. We've got the Darkhold, which features Wanda, who died, so that they're like, hey, this takes place before the Hellfire Gala and the Trial of Magneto. So we've got the Trial of Magneto that's going on, and maybe we're going to get some big reveal out of it, although Inferno is set after it, and everything seems hunky-dory, so I don't think we're going to. In the scheme of things, Danny doing the initial talking to the Shadow King bothered me, because I In my opinion, it should be either Shan, who has a long-standing trauma dealing with Baruch, and she dealt with repercussions of it for the longest time, even though in comics they, like, made her five-month skinny trial, like, one new mean special but <laughs> she was in a horrible place after what he did to her and then we have rain who has just fallen victim to it
4: i don't think shan or rain could have kept their calm together because both of them have been so badly tortured by him i think they would have i think they would have just <laughs> gone fuck it i'm gonna try and murder the fuck out of you i cannot stand it because you you could tell that magic is disgusted rain is Super pissed off. Like Jan is shook to her core. So I think Danny is honestly stepping up almost into that Valkyrie role and and taking lead because she she has honestly the best chance to stand up against him since her power deals directly with you know the mental mindscape and and fear. So I think she has the best position to to talk to him and she's she's stepping up like the leader she is.
5: No, I kind of agree with you. Nick. Nathan that I think that it should have been Shanner Wolfsbane just because like like you said I was in that position that's what I would do is like I was just like like you said Raven I was just like
6: cuss them out something you said Raven made me remember a issue that came out this year that I've kind of already forgotten about the Chris Claremont anniversary special so in that book Chris Claremont has Danny Moonstar travel through a younger version of Chris Cl- uh, a younger version of Danny Moonstar travel through time periods taking on people possessed by the Shadow King and set the Valkyries. Because when you mentioned Valkyries, that made me realize that the Valkyries is a mortal foe of the Shadow King itself. Maybe this arc might be a realization of that. I would love to see a reference to that story, though, happen so that we can just get it all tied together. So maybe Amal Farouk as the Shadow King is a larger-than-life ideal, and maybe Danny Moonstar is the only one on that team who is really set up to truly take him on just because of the roles that she's possessed in the past.
4: Mm, yeah, no, that's that's actually a really salient point right there.
6: I did, though, love that it was Shan who realized, hey, this isn't our fears, this is his fears. She has that long period of history, like Farouk had to have had her for years to set mm-hmm. up what he did to her. under his control. What do we think about the different iterations of battle that he sent them through this data page of strategies and tactics? Like, I'm just, like, pouring over it, and I love it. Like, did you guys have a favorite moment from that data page? And if you're looking at page uh, digital, it's page 21 or 25.
4: Funny enough to me, that data page felt very much like Orcus. So, like, part of me is going... I get that he's a little bit of a like a minor precog, I thought, like, or at least he has very good, you know, long term forethought. So I'm like, is he working basically like the enemy just so he can counter what he perceives as the enemy? Because he's running like all of these, you know, Danger Room-esque simulations, which is kind of what Orcus is doing, but they're not, they're not even having to ask the mutants to show up. The mutants are just doing it. So yeah, I'm like, he's going about this in a very scientific way but also I'm wondering how much psychic damage that's doing because they're basically experiencing their death over and over and over again, even if they don't have a memory of it.
5: And I know that they probably didn't have enough like retail space to do it, but I rather would have seen this done mm-hmm. than then mm. like shown it written as a data page.
4: Yeah. I, I totally get what you're saying. And yeah, they could have used the info page as an art page. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that would have even more clearly gotten their point across. But then again, I'm also a little bit greedy. So if I can get an extra page <laughs> or two worth of art, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, because I could eat this art for days.
6: You know, I, I did have that the same thought that you mentioned earlier, Raven, where I was like, who is writing this data page? I was like, because usually most data pages have had a clear writer. I like being greedy too. I really, really, <laughs> really, really, really would have loved to see these battles go on. As much as I love how much Vita, they do a lot of great character work. Mm -hmm. sometimes they do tend to wrap up important plot points as like codas or just somebody explaining it away in a sentence kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to see more of that. And I guess that's not the story that they are setting out to tell. They're setting out to tell the emotional journey to get there. But I kind of a lot of times like to see like the aftermath of what they're dealing with uh like even in children of the atoms they when they sort of just explain away some of the things you're like but i want to see the emotional journey you've set us on an right. emotional journey to get to this point I want to see it on the emotional journey to get through this point, right? Like when they're like, "Oh, we talked it out and we're all good." <laughs> like yeah, well, you I'm know, like, I want to see that.
4: <laughs> uh, yeah, and and that was actually my one of my biggest issues was with children. In the Adam. they just tried to wrap it up so quick and neat, and I'm like, "Uh, no." That you sent me on an emotional journey with um a per, with you know a person in the group or actually several people in the group who are abusive and like red flag abusive, and then yeah. you're just like at the end, oh, everybody's gonna get along, and now they're you know dating. I'm like, ew, no, do not date your abusers. I'm sorry, I've been there, done that. Do not date your abusers. Like, no. But yeah, no, like sometimes I need those like couple extra panels, not just because I'm greedy, but so that I can go on the emotional journey that has been set up. If you just tell me, oh, and we're all good now, I'm like, "Mm, no, because I have too many questions and there was there's too much that relies on me seeing the story and not just kind of reading it. But yeah, like, oh, in this. (sighs) Like I don't hate the data page, but I wish it had been done as art instead of just words because Farouk Amal has a very particular way he speaks, um a kind of cadence um, um a bit of a floweriness to his his speech pattern and whatnot. and this feels very dry and unlike him. Mm, okay, so yeah, I just yeah, I'm just, I'm just saying, I'm just saying if, if we can get some art panels to help get <laughs> us through that journey because I mean, Oh, Rodriguez like I could uh, I applaud this man it's honestly like he he does more with no words and just pictures than some people can do with a book worth of words like just oh my god like literally we we went from the uh the ones where his head is the paneling yeah all the way for like the next three or so pages and there's barely like two lines written in there but you get so much story and so much tone and emotion and 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 and, you know like tension gets built in just those pictures so like oh i can i can only imagine in my head what that writing would look like if it had been made into paneling but i understand i understand i understand their time <laughs> limits i'm so not mad like i need that to be made like very clear i'm so not mad but also like oh yeah you know oh
6: yeah uh, that's, that's only like a slight knock to <laughs> for me for what they for what they do because i've really enjoyed their writing style and
4: their, their
6: mm-hmm. emotional their attempt to have like some real emotional heaviness in these you know funny books and they can bring a good fight scene but they also can bring some really heavy thought-provoking stories and mm-hmm. like a small knock is like not saying like oh my god i hate them it's like i love them but that's one thing i'd like to see <laughs>
4: right yeah exactly yay.
6: like you said raven they just kind of like
4: and we're
5: friends again yay you know it's like, yeah. Like, yeah yeah it's, sure. but it's 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 like, yes, you guys are friends again, but I am not convinced you are friends again just by writing it in one sentence. Like
4: Mm -hmm. I love what Vita does. They are amazing at developing characters. And I feel that sometimes they don't get the full time they deserve Mm -hmm. to give the characters all of the breathing room that they need. I feel sometimes maybe they get rushed or told, hey, you got to be a little bit quicker on this because we got to move you to other things. So like, I would love... I would love to see them get enough time to actually you know fully develop and, and you know
5: what I'm expecting is that literally every single book is going to end but yeah. come back with like a new number one and I actually hope that this team stays the same I, I hope we kind of like shuffle up shuffle it up a little bit you know get something different happening and different characters and that
6: yeah I agree I hope, I hope they're able to get a good wrap up to this wild Hunt arc uh, and I, I really 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 do hope that Vita, they get to continue writing the New Mutants. I really like their work with Rob Reyes. so I really want him to stay on the line, too, because mm-hmm. it is such a good combo. Like, he brings out the like, dreamy quality of their writing Mm -hmm. (laughs) in a way that I'm like, holy shit, this rocks. Like you had mentioned earlier, Drew. I know, I I did like the Jonathan Hickman initial run. I did not like the split up between the Jonathan Hickman stories and the Ed Brisson stories. And Ed Brisson stories were good stories. They just didn't connect with me on a level that Mm. I hoped that they would. But I really, when Vita, they got New Mutants and I read that first issue, I was like, holy shit, I'm fully invested again. These are my characters. These are my jam. I'm here for all of it. So I know we touched on it a little, but do we think that the Shadow King as a character is a strong enough character to take that sort of mantle place of apocalypse, trying to drive mutant kind forward in that same way?
4: (laughs) he had to do a lot of work and i still didn't even totally trust him at the end honestly i didn't so to try and ask me to trust farouk and shadow king oh hell Hell no I think he will do whatever he feels is in his best interest for self-preservation and he is I mean he's the embodiment of fear quite literally and that's the whole problem is this is his fears so mm-hmm. any little thing that starts to set down that path of his fears he's gonna be coming more and more reactionary to it so no I don't think he's gonna be big daddy a anytime soon
5: no no I'd rather have I like I think he would be like an interesting candidate but I would my vote would be for Destiny over um, mm-hmm. I'm all for oh, wow, yeah. I just think that like Destiny would bring a more like valuable kind of experience to the Quiet Council whereas like really I think like when you're comparing um, Shadow King and Apocalypse it's mostly like the power quality you know what I mean like I don't mm-hmm. think that uh, the Shadow King would bring anything interesting to the table like, yeah. was,
6: like, like political Mm -hmm. no he would do i think he would just try to be uh old pre-karkoa big daddy a kind of clone he'd be like survival of the fumes like we've got to prepare he'd be be like a great like secretary of defense or something
5: yeah and it would be like like the thing is is he would have all of the other mutants to like keep him in check like you know what i mean like i would never put sinister on the council either but you know there he is oh my god Uh, so like he is he would be put in check and like like there is voting and stuff like that. So Yeah.
4: Voting voting is nice and all but we have seen how freaking devious and and oh how like his freaking psyche and his powers are like like a needle you don't Mm -hmm. hardly even notice it until it is too late like and not everybody on that quiet council can resist you know psychic invasion so yeah
6: yeah i i Charles' oblivious ass would be like, Yeah, this is fine.
5: (laughs) Like,
6: this is fine. We're mortal enemies, but this is fine. Right? (laughs) Emma would be sitting there, like, wide eyed, looking at Charles, like, but it
4: <laughs> right like bitch no <laughs>
6: mystique would be like
4: buddy he mentally fucking
6: controlled me for a while and that would make magneto go oh maybe this is
4: <laughs> i think mystique could be like mm, and i can't get my wife back <laughs> fuck y'all
6: <laughs> so that does bring up some interesting history if you think about it actually actually who really got Destin killed in current canon unless like the fan theory where moira really did it, was that uh, Farouk sort of maybe started taking over Legion at that time, unless it was just purely Legion. The timetable is not really 100% clear, but we know Shadow King arrived on Muir Island with uh, Polaris because they, she had those weird psychic amplifying powers at the time instead of her magnetic one. She was big and strong like she Hulk, so really confusing period. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it, they he was... If not responsible for Destiny's death, then if, if that was just purely Legion, then he at least psychically controlled all of the Muir Island staff mm-hmm. and residents and Mystique as well. Although I think he thought she was Val Cooper and not Mystique, so that was also complicated as well. Yeah, um, you know. so i think it would be hard for moira if she's still act, gonna act as a shadow figure in the government to help trust uh Farouk being on the silent council <laughs>
4: mm-hmm. which i mean uh, if if anybody actually trusted this a-hole to be on the council like trusted trusted him i would i would question their mental state like have you already been infected has has the shadow king already gotten a hold of you because you just said you trusted the shadow king like what <laughs>
6: I don't know. This brings another just interesting question that popped in my mind from talking about this. Do you think any of the new mutants themselves would be good candidates for the Quiet Council?
4: I think that Danny Moonstar would honestly be an amazing addition to the Quiet Council. She would bring some freaking well-needed, you know, ethics and (laughs) (laughs) slightly less questionable morals, maybe. That'd be kind of nice. And saying
5: Yeah, I agree. She's always been my pick to replace Jean on like, the mm-hmm. the summer council just because um we need a voice for the new mutants like someone to like, mm-hmm. you know, get, bring their voice to the table what they need, what they want. So, I think and I and like she does a lot of that already in this run, so I think she'd be perfect for that role. Mm-hmm. I
6: do too. I mean, she had an amazing list of mentors before she became a mentor herself. Charles Xavier, then Magneto, and then even for a small bit she had Cable when she was back in X-Force so like, just, and, and he did help her out during the MLL period, even though that was, like, retconned And she is, got some expanded scale in the Marvel Universe as a sometimes Valkyrie. I don't know why she's still not a Valkyrie, but, okay. You know, as a sometimes, as a part-time Valkyrie. And she also trained under Forge for magic for a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, they just threw a whole bunch of stuff at her during that period of time. But she's gotten, she's got a, a wealth of experience, and a wealth of connections outside of just X-Men. Mm-hmm. I would say if she doesn't get to be on the council at some point I would almost love to see Danny Moonstar go to like an Avengers or something just to expand her role in Mutendom as a whole. That's if Vita they don't get to continue New Mutants, because Vita like writes probably the best Danny I've seen in a while.
4: Mm-hmm.